Anyways, we are going to jump right into Luke 13 this morning. We're halfway there, um, halfway through the gospel of Luke. And uh, see, it's not been that bad. And we have, I don't know, another eight months to go. So, so I hope you're settling in uh, to the gospel. But as you're turning to Luke chapter 13 this morning, I want to ask if when you, when you turn on the news, or if you, if you still watch the news, or if you, if you open the Apple News app or wherever you, you read the Wall Street Journal or um, pick up the Sunday paper off of your lawn because you're still doing that, um, if, if when you read the stories in it, you wonder if God is seeing these things and when he is going to do something about it. Because I don't know about you, but when I turn on my TV, or I don't really watch news that much, but when I'm scrolling through and I read uh, innocent lives taken in Gaza, or um, terrorist attacks in Israel, or if you remember a few years ago, a bridge collapsed in Italy while people were on it, and it killed a bunch of people, or people flying planes into towers, or um, things more local, like a murder that happened and wasn't solved for, how long was that? Like eight months or something? Like um, the people over um, who were on hiking trails. But you kind of get where I'm going. You can kind of open your news, and there's just a lot of awful that goes on in the world. And and we can even read more about that kind of stuff when it comes to churches. You know, if you're in Somalia and you're a Christian, your life expectancy after you become a Christian is something like 60 days. Um, that short after you become a Christian. You just kind of wonder, does God see these things? And maybe just from your own experiences with life, you also wonder, those things also help you ask bigger questions like, when are you going to do something, God? Why does God allow these things to happen? And Or why do certain things happen to some people and certain things not happen to me or to other people or to so on? That's what the news kind of does sometimes, and they're challenging questions. Those are hard questions to ask, and we're not going to, spoiler alert, we're not going to get to all of those questions because Jesus isn't going to get to all of those questions now. Um, And we don't always get uh, answers on this side of eternity um, for all of those questions. But as we'll see in Luke 13 today, Jesus is going to be confronted with something hard. He's going to be confronted with some hard news, and people are going to ask for a response from Jesus. But like he does so often, he's going to take it to a completely different place this morning. So whatever those questions we ask of God when we, or that we're asking of God when we look at the news or when we examine our lives, Jesus is going to kind of take those questions and, and turn them a bit. And I think that what we're going to see this morning is that God delays judgment because he awaits repentance. God delays, puts pause on judgment because he awaits repentance. So um, let's read Luke 13 verses 1 through 9, and then we'll pray together. God's word says this, at that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, 
you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years, I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we are people who are shaped by so many things. We're shaped by what's going on in the world. We're shaped by our upbringing. And God's a lot of those things can be good. We're shaped by our culture. But God, now we're asking to be people who are shaped by your word. So would you do that, Lord Jesus? By the power of your spirit, would you conform us to your image, Lord Christ? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we spend the next several minutes talking about repentance, I want to look at two things. God's call to repentance and God's answer, or God's wait for repentance. So we have to remember that when we drop into any passage on a Sunday morning, it can feel like new, like unlike another scene in the Bible. But we're dropping into a scene that has been going on now since the beginning of chapter 12, because these passages always fall within a broader context. And for the past couple of weeks, Jesus has been talking to crowds and his disciples. There were thousands of people gathered around Jesus to hear him teach, to hear what he would say. And and his disciples were in that mix of people. You would have, there would have been skeptics there, people who didn't, didn't know, didn't, uh, weren't sure about Jesus. And there would have been people who were all in on Jesus. Jesus' closest apostles and followers would have been there too. And, and Jesus kind of gets into these Q&A moments where somebody says something and he responds in kind of a different way and doesn't ever really seem like he answers the question, because what he does is he goes deeper. Um, well, this is one of those occasions. They keep asking questions of Jesus, and he keeps responding and taking it in a way that they don't expect. It would have been kind of frustrating sometimes. We get frustrated with politicians when, when you ask them a question and they don't answer it. And sometimes Jesus seems like he's doing that, but he is answering it in just a much more profound way. Well, one of these questions comes up from the crowd, and this is where we get into our first situation, and it's a shocking incident. And what happened was, apparently, some these Galileans whose blood were mixed with their sacrifice, what that's referring to is probably these Galilean worshipers who went to temple or were on their way to the temple, and Pilate had them murdered, slaughtered them, wiped them out. They were killed either worshiping God or on their way to it. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And you can imagine how appalled you would be. You know, like when we hear of church shooting, we're like appalled at that, right? Well, this is like that, except the government did it. Pilate did it. And so the crowd tosses this report before Jesus. Now, you should know that this crowd is not neutral, 
They're not just like, oh, Jesus, did you hear about this? And making casual conversation. And the text doesn't come out and say this, but you can kind of guess and assume that there was some kind of motive. They were putting this before Jesus because they wanted to see how he responded. They were not neutral. They had some expectation of Jesus to say something about Pilate or something about what they should do about this awful situation. They may have been looking for outraged Jesus to open a can on Pilate. They would have been just, they would have been just together expecting Jesus to share in their shock at those who were worshiping being murdered in cold blood. And you probably would have done the same thing. I probably would have done the same thing. It's easy to kind of sympathize with the crowd in this story. Because here you are, you're God's chosen people. You're trying to be faithful. And now you're occupied by another country, that is Rome. And Pilate has been committing horrendous acts for years. Um, You won't find the story in the Bible, but other history books from around the time talk about Pilate having 6,000 Pharisees murdered. He was an awful human being. So imagine like having 6,000 of your cultural and religious leaders just slaughtered. 6,000 of the people who were the preservers of your culture just wiped out because Pilate wanted to send a message. So he had them massacred, and now he had these Galileans massacred. So it's not crazy for the crowd to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, did you hear about these Galileans? I think I would have too. I think I would have wanted to know. And sometimes when I watch the news, I'm like, Jesus, did you hear about this thing? Are you seeing this right now? It's a normal question to ask. And what does Jesus do when he's thrown this report? How does he act? How does he respond? Well, he responds in a way that kind of no one, including me, like if you're reading this text and you're picking up on this, you're not expecting Jesus to respond the way that he does. But he responds similarly to all of the other questions. He goes at something deeper. Do you remember the story back in in Luke 12 where a brother says, Jesus, can you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? And Jesus says, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Let me tell you a story about greed, right? Like Jesus just keeps kind of juking, but then getting at his deeper issue of greed. And then he tells his disciples about anxiety and, and remembering the birds. Well, this is another story where, where they're like, Jesus, did you hear about this, this awful incident? And Jesus like, let me offer you a solution. And he, this is what he says in verse 2. His immediate response is, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? Jesus responds to this moment by asking if they thought the people murdered by Pilate were more sinful because of what happened to them. He's asking, did they have this coming because they were more sinful? And if you're in the crowd, you're like, sinful Jesus. You think, wait, you're calling them sinful, that they were more sinful. No, we don't think they were sinful at all. We think Pilate was sinful. He, these people were the ones worshiping. And Jesus is like, well, do you think that they're worse off than anybody else? And Jesus is like, no, they're not worse off than, than other people. 
If anyone was sinful, it was Pilate. And Pilate seems to be doing just fine. But then Jesus goes further, next line, and says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Jesus says, no, these people are not more sinful than anyone else because tragedy happened to them. But then he pivots to the audience and says, basically says, you all need to repent too because you're sinful because there's judgment coming. Jesus begins warning them of a severe judgment that is to come. He says, repent or you're going to perish too. Then the second situation comes up where Jesus brings up another tragedy, the tower in Siloam that I guess fell on people and it killed them. Now, this could have been one of two potential scenarios. We don't know. This could have just been like any old tower and like the bridge collapsed in Italy one day. It just kind of gave way and fell on people. But there's a really good chance that Pilate is actually the common denominator in both of these stories because Pilate regularly siphoned money from the temple treasury and funded his infrastructure projects. This is like Chris Sununu taking our church offering and building himself a new office, right? Pilate regularly did this, but regardless what the scenario is, Jesus' response is still the same. It's still the same. He says to repent or they or you too will perish. Jesus doesn't step into the why question. He doesn't step into their collective outrage. He doesn't appease whatever was in their hearts. He says, you know what? There's a judgment coming, and you need to repent and get on the same page with God, or you too will perish. Like, I know this is real. I know this awful reality, but you need to look at your own heart. There is a judgment coming. And we need to stop looking out there and to start looking in here. Pilate is, or Jesus is directing the focus of the audience away from Pilate, away from their collective outrage, and he's asking them to focus on their own hearts for a minute. Because the reality is, and we heard a little bit about this last week, there is a severe judgment coming. And we need to repent. There is a God who is ruling and overruling all things who will one day ask people to give an account. This is a frightening reality if you don't know God. And what Jesus is saying to this crowd is they need to decide what they're going to do with Jesus or they too will perish like the people in the story. Jesus does what parents do all the time. You know, when you have a, when you have a kid, you're reminding, like, you're, you're constantly reminding kid of consequences. You do this, and this will happen. Don't stick your finger in that light socket, or you will get shocked. Don't touch the hot stove, or you will get burned. Right? We, like, we tell our kids these kinds of things all the time, and Jesus is basically saying, you know, your life is consequential. It matters in who you trust in, who you believe matters. So you need to get on the same page with God. Jesus reminds them of a severe judgment that is to come. 
But this isn't just a word of judgment. It's easy to read these things and be like, Jesus, you're being super harsh right now. Like, there's judgment to come. What about this stuff? But Jesus' word of judgment is also a word of grace, which leads us to our second point. God's waiting for repentance. God's wait for repentance. Jesus continues on, and he tells the story of this man with a fig tree. And fig tree is a symbol of prosperity. And it's a sim- symbol in the Bible of, of, of prosperity and of flourishing and of wholeness. And it's often a symbol for Israel itself. And so this man has a fig tree in his garden, and he notices that the fig tree, after three years, has not produced any fruit. No figs coming from it. And so he finds this vineyard worker, and he's like, you know what, can you get this thing out of here? It's just taking nutrients. Like, it's not worth the soil it's planted in. And the vineyard worker's like, hold on, let's give it another year. I'm going to fertilize it, dig around it, and let's see what happens. If it doesn't bear fruit, then we'll get rid of it. So the vineyard owner, he waits. And what we have is a picture of this moment that we're in. That God delays judgment because he's awaiting repentance. God delays judgment. God delays judgment on the world. He delays judgment on individuals. He delays judgment on Pilate because he's awaiting repentance from people. He is patient. And what is repentance? All this talk of repentance, we should probably define it, huh? Well, repentance, simply put, is a change of mind that leads to a change in life. A change of mind that leads to a change of life. If you want to change how you live, one pastor says this, if you want to change how you live, you've got to change how you think. So repentance is changing your mind about something in such a way that it leads to changes in the way that you live. We, we sometimes hear people say they're sorry. Repentance is not just saying you're sorry. Repentance is turning from your sin. We've all had people that said they're sorry and nothing ever changed. Wasn't repentance. That's not what the Bible means by repentance. It's not just saying I'm sorry. Repentance doesn't mean you immediately change. It means like, I've changed the way I think about this, so I'm going to live accordingly. You begin living your life according to your change of mind. And if repentance is turning from one thing to another, what is Jesus calling people from? Well, in this passage, Jesus is calling people from specifically, I think, at least two things. First, Jesus is calling these people away from hope in their national identity. He's calling people away from hope in nation. He's calling people to repent of hoping in nations and power to deliver them from darkness. See, all of these people had different kind of expectations about what the Messiah was to do. You've probably heard these before. They were expecting a military conqueror to overthrow their oppressors and to lead in the kingdom of God. And so here's Jesus, and he gets tossed this story about um, the Galileans, and Jesus doesn't even go there. But people there expected the, the Messiah to use power, force, and violence to accomplish his reign, and to deliver Israel from their oppressors. Unless we think that this is something that only happened in 31 AD or whenever this was, 
This is something that we struggle with today. Christians in present time have sometimes struggled because we put hope in, in regular old systems and power structures that exist in the world today to deliver what only Jesus through his kingdom can deliver. We've seen this when Christians cozy up to government too much and think that government is the way to usher in the kingdom of God. It doesn't. We see progressives do this too when they think if only we keep enacting laws, society will keep getting better and better. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't enact good laws or fight for or, or for be good citizens or, or promote morality. I'm saying that those things can never deliver God's kingdom. Those things can never de- de- deliver the lasting change that we're looking for. They will just leave us empty. But some reason, over and over and over again, we seem to get attached to systems of this world to deliver what only Jesus can bring. So, now we see... These kind of identity markers, who you are, what you do, and who are the bad guys. That's the way we kind of operate with national identity. So this plays out. Who are you? We're Israel. What do you do? We worship Yahweh. Who are the bad guys? Pilate and Rome. We do this today. Who are we? We're New Hampshireites. What do we do? We live free or die. Who are the bad guys? People from Massachusetts. Or who are we? Americans. What do we do? We embrace freedom. Who are the bad guys? The people taking away my freedoms. Or who are we? We're progressive. What do we do? We enact laws that, that create progress. Who are the bad guys? Is Any, Anyone that gets in the way. We can do this with all sorts of things. And Jesus is saying that your identity as a follower of him trumps all of those things. Because those other things will never deliver. In Jesus' kingdom transcends cultures. It pulls Republicans and Democrats together. It transcends all of those things because Jesus is doing something different. See, they wanted outraged Jesus, but they didn't get him because his kingdom comes in a subversive way. It comes in a Luke 6 way where Jesus talks about those who mourn now will be comforted later. That those who hungry now will be filled later. But those people get the kingdom of God as they love their neighbor, as they do good to those who hate them. So Jesus is encouraging these people to repent of their nationalistic, revolutionary zeal. The Messiah will not play that game. God is doing something different. But the second thing Jesus is calling out, I think, is spiritual pride. Woven into the text is Jesus asking, do you think these people are more sinful than those people? Do you think you're better off than these people over there? And the answer is a resounding no. There are only sinners. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one just has it coming. Because the truth is, apart from Christ, we all have it coming. You know, we say that about other people, right? Oh, they had it coming. And then there's some truth in that. But, but apart from Christ, apart from forgiveness received through him, we are all like that. We are all far from him. And what Jesus is doing is he's turning their eyes away from other people and he's asking them to look at their hearts and say, what about you? What about you in relation to me? What about 
you in relation to Jesus. Repent. You must get on with the way Jesus wants to do things, and there's no one deserving of his kingdom, but he offers it to you. Jesus is asking people to look inside. Not out there, but in here. Not to blame the world's problems on them, but to look at their own hearts and how they relate to God, because there is a judgment coming. G.K. Chesterton, um, and I just heard the story this week, I was a well-known British philosopher, and uh, he was an author and writer. He's written some famous books. You can look them up. And um, he was kind of quick, quick-witted uh, person. And the Times of London was running a series where they would write these different philosophers and write these different um, uh, authors a question and then ask them to write back their answer, and they would put it in the paper. And the question is, what's wrong with the world? And so they would write this person over here and they would respond, you know, with this long treatise about what's wrong with the world and how to fix the world's problems. But they wrote G.K. Chesterton and said, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote, dear sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Because he was on to it. It's easy to look out there. But what Jesus is doing, what Chesterton understood is he needs to look in here. Don't look at Pilate, evil as they are, but look at yourself and repent. The kingdom of God stood right in front of these people. It was found in a person. His name is Jesus and in following his ways. And Jesus was calling them away from their revolutionary zeal and to life with him because the kingdom comes in ways we often don't understand. God is patient. He is waiting for people to repent because this is a word of grace. And why is God patient? Well, because he's merciful. He's a God that loves to show mercy to sinners. It's easy to read judgment passages and think, God is harsh. But no, what Jesus is trying to convey is that there is a judgment where God will judge evil, but he is a God eager to for sinners to come to him. He's a God longing to forgive sin. So if you're standing far from God and wondering if God, can God take me? Would God take me? Will he just be eternally angry with me? That's not God's heart at all. And that's not Jesus' heart. He is inviting you into relationship with him, inviting you to know him. These are warnings to run to the God who loves you and forgives you. Judgment is not at odds with God's mercy and kindness. Look at what Paul says in Romans. Love this. It says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened heart and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Judgment and kindness are not at odds with each other because we desperately want a God who will judge the world and all of its problems. But, and we also desperately want a God who will welcome us home. And our God does that. But when we don't repent, when we don't yield our lives to him, when we don't follow in Jesus's ways, we stand outside of his kindness and outside of his love by our own choices. 
Our God is delaying judgment because he wants more people to come to him. He wants you to come to him. Our God is patient and merciful so that we might repent and find life. And we can only find life by repenting of the things that are wrong and choosing to turn towards Jesus. Our lives are meant to yield fruit because Jesus' forgiveness leads to life. That's what he does. And so we are called to, to yield our lives to his lordship. He was calling the people there to yield their lives to God's way of doing things in the world. To realize that's not always the way that makes sense to us. So I'm going to ask, like if, if, you, if, if your life was a fig tree in a garden, would it bear fruit? Is there fruit there that looks like a follower of Jesus? Are you loving neighbor? Are you submitting your plans to God? Are you generous? Are you, do you embrace those on the margins? Do you have hard conversations with those who've hurt you? Those you've hurt? Do you pursue your spouse with love? Patient with your kids? Does your life look like longing for righteousness? Does it look like good fruit? And where you failed, where you've slipped up, are you running to God with those things? Are you running to him and saying, Jesus, you are Lord. I want you to be Lord of this area of my life. There's not fruit in this area. I want to see more of you in this area. Because though God's judgment is severe, his grace is even more severe than his judgment. His grace trumps his judgment He is so forgiving. So we repent of those things. We repent of those things and we walk in the ways of Jesus. And finally, a repentant life not only brings fruit, but it waits well. Jesus doesn't answer the question of the crowd directly, but he does answer it indirectly. That there is coming a judgment that God's ways don't work like our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He does things different. His kingdom is coming. He will right the injustices of the world. We may not understand how or why those things unfold, but he, Jesus does clue them in that God is doing it, and he is bringing his kingdom. So we wait. We wait with our questions knowing that God will provide the answers, knowing that he will do what is right and trust that his kingdom is coming in a way that most people cannot even see. It's coming through Christ. It's coming through the message of the good news that that you can be reconciled to God through him. That's how his kingdom is breaking in. His kingdom is breaking in to marriages. It's breaking in to families. It's breaking in to individuals. It's changing lives. And one day God will change everything. So we repent and we trust Jesus. Eugene Peterson said this about repentance, and this closes us out. He says, repentance is not an emotion. It's not a feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. 
It is deciding that you've been wrong and supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong and thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you've been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ and to become his pilgrim in the path of peace. So we live lives of repentance, following the Prince of Peace on the path of peace. We live, we lay down our lives for Christ, trusting in his ways, because there is severe judgment, but there is also severe grace. God delays judgment because he's awaiting repentance. We just um, said in our confession today, the Apostles' Creed, and it's interesting to me, as I think through the gospel and through the life of Jesus and this parable and, and this story in that line in the Apostles' Creed where it says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. The same, the people outraged by the actions of Pilate would one day see Pilate absolve himself of any wrong which would eventually lead to the crucifixion of, of Jesus Christ. In, in what would seem like the biggest loss ever, like somebody being crucified to a cross and dying, and what seemed like defeat, Jesus, three days later, turns into victory. And in what seems like loss, God somehow, in death, God somehow brings life on the other side of it. I can't help but see that. And, and say like, okay, God's kingdom is coming through ways that these people could never really understand until there was a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And we live on the other side of this. So God's kingdom is coming. We know this. We don't have to put our hope in nations. We don't have to be spiritually proud, but we can trust that we have a risen Savior who's worth trusting in, whose ways are right, and so we repent because we know that there's a judgment coming that God will one day make things right. And the reason there's his grace is better than his judgment is because God laid his judgment on Christ himself. And so we have access to that only through him. It's the good news of the gospel that Christ took what we deserved so that we could have life in him. We celebrate that good news each week with the Lord's table. We remember both God's judgment and his grace together where we remember the riches of his kindness and his patience and forbearance, and where we repent of our sins and come and feast at the table with Jesus, remembering what he did for us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, communion is not for you. I'd encourage you to take Christ. There is a judgment coming. Repent. There's a God eager to receive you. Those of you who are Christians, come forward. Come with confidence. Come with joy. Come with soberness. Because Christ died so that you might have life. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. 
Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes and he will come. Let's pray.